You may be seated as you're being seated. If you will find your Bibles, open them up, turn them on. We are in this series that we have creatively called Ephesians because we're working through the book of Ephesians, yes. And we are in chapter 1 and verse 20 today. Now, our service today will be a little bit different because we are going to be uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper during the time of commitment. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a ancient ceremony, if you will, that Christians have been participating in for 2,000 years. It is for believers, and it carries with it a very sacred and rich meaning. Whenever we take of the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ on the cross. We remember how His body was broken for us. We remember how His blood was shed for our sins. It also points to the resurrection, how Christ's brokenness was restored whenever life returned, and then ultimately it points to our salvation, how the brokenness that is within each of us can be restored through who Jesus is and what He has done. And so when I reached the end of the message, during that time that we call the time of commitment or invitation, I'm going to invite those of you who are believers to come. We have three stations, one here, two at the back, and I'm going to invite those of you who are believers to come. You'll receive the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice from our deacons. Uh, to help you understand where you go from there, once you receive that, you can go back to your seating area. You can have a time of prayer, either as an individual or as a family. And then whenever you are ready, you can partake of both the bread and the juice uh, as we remember who Christ is and what He has done for us. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a believer, uh, we want to say that we're glad you're here, and we hope that you're taking in the teaching from Scripture, and we hope that uh, during that time when others are partaking of the Lord's Supper, that you will honor the sacredness and the significance of what it means to those who are believers, but we also hope that during that time, you'll make the decision in your own life to become a believer. In Christ, And so if you're here and you're not a believer during that time of the Lord's Supper, if you could come and see me and I can talk to you about what it means to be a believer. Ephesians 1 verse 20. Here's what the Bible says. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion. And every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, I want you to zero in because this is where we're headed uh, to verse 22, where the scriptures talking about Jesus say, and he put everything under his feet. And appointed him head as everything, as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. On the day that Jesus died, his back was lacerated by the Roman whip. His face was bruised, it was disfigured by a merciless beating. His hands and his feet were impaled. He was hung to die, and there his dignity was removed 
Ultimately, the day resulted in Jesus enduring one of the most painful, horrific, prolonged deaths that anyone can imagine. Now, mentally, I think sometimes we do not really fully absorb the reality of the death of Christ. And the reason is, is because we know about the resurrection. So as we think about the crucifixion story, our mind kind of already goes to the resurrection, and we realize that, yes, he's dying on the cross, but in three days he's going to rise again. And so sometimes we don't fully understand that Jesus' death was not a video game where the hero falls to his death but is resurrected by a new credit. Jesus' body, it had reached the point of no return. And like billions that had come before and billions that would come after, he was dead. Life had escaped his body. It was a real, full death. In verse 19, which we looked at last week, Paul prays this prayer. He prays that we may know the immeasurable greatness of His power to us who believe according to the working of His vast strength. And then in verse 20, the Scriptures say God demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising Him from the dead. So Paul prays that we might know the immeasurable power of God contrasted by the finite nature of our own strength and power, that we as believers might know what it is to experience the vast strength of God. And then he says to us that this has been demonstrated in the Messiah when God, through His power, raised Him from the dead. Now, you might find it interesting that Jesus is not the only one in the Bible who raised from the dead. In fact, there's at least seven other occurrences in Scripture where people rose from the dead. And in 1 Kings, the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 17, a a widow's young boy was raised from the dead by the prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha was grieved because A friend's son had died, and so he prayed, and God raised the boy from the dead. Moving into the New Testament, Jesus, in Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 8, he raised a young boy and a young girl from the dead. In John chapter 11, Jesus' close friend Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. He, he, was, he rose from the dead. If you ever read Matthew 27, right after the death of Jesus, there's like the zombie scene. I mean, tombs are opened, and the Bible actually says the dead were walking around Jerusalem. I'm not making it up. It's really in there, okay? Acts chapter 9. There's a young girl named Tabitha who dies, and she's raised back to life uh, by the apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 20, there's this guy named Eutychus. Now, Eutychus went to hear the apostle Paul preaching, preach, and he's leaning out the window listening to the sermon, (laughs) and he falls asleep. Now, that's never happened to you, all right? He falls asleep, although... He then falls out the window three stories, and he dies. Yeah, it's funny, right? <laughs> the, 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 kid, I'm, I'm, the kid dies, but, but then the apostle Paul raises him back from the dead. 
The difference between Jesus' resurrection and all these others is who Jesus is. In verse 20, it says that God demonstrated his vast strength in the Messiah. You see, the Messiah was the anointed one, the one that people longed for. He would be the one that would live a life that was free from the stain of sin. The Messiah would be the one that would experience the, uh, would provide the atonement through his blood and would pour out God's Spirit on all who believed. The Messiah was the one to which the entire Old Testament was ultimately pointing. In verses 21 and 22, the Scriptures remind us that God exalted Christ to his rightful position as the king of kings, that he was seated by God at his right hand in the heavens. And it says that Jesus is far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not just in his own age, but also in the ages to come. So here's the difference between Jesus coming back to life and the seven others in the Bible. That is that Jesus will never die again. Jesus' return to life was a resurrection rather than a resuscitation. And in verse 22, the Scriptures teach us that God not only healed the brokenness of Jesus' body for all eternity, but he appointed him as head over the church. Actually, head over everything for the church. And then look at the descriptive language. The church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, there's a few thoughts in this verse that I, I don't want you to miss today. You, you want to grasp this. The first is that Jesus is the one who brings life to the church. Uh, the church is Jesus' idea. If you look at the life of Jesus, he was not a mass organizer. The one thing that he organized was the church. The church was to be a movement that would begin at Jerusalem and go forth to all nations making disciples. The church was Jesus' idea. Sometimes people say that they're really into Jesus, but they're not into the church. Well, the church was Jesus' formation. It was his thought. And so he calls us to be a part of the movement the body that is the church, and within the church, he's the head. Now, this is very, very profound. Without a head, you're dead. Okay? So Jesus is the one that gives life to the church. If we take Jesus out of the church, you no longer have the church. You have groups of friends that gather. You have social events. But if you don't have Jesus as the head, as the primary reason why we gather, what drives us to do what we do, if Jesus isn't the head of the church, you no longer have life in that church. Now, secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus is the one who rules the church. If you look at the imagery of the passage, how is Jesus presented? He is presented as the king. He's above everything. He, he's over everything for the church. It's a kingdom. Jesus is set up as the king of the church. You see, the church is not a think tank where everyone's opinion is of equal weight. The church is ultimately a kingdom where Christ's word is viewed as truth. And so one of the things that differentiates the church from 
perhaps the college campus or other areas, is that within the church, we understand certain things to be absolute truth. These things that Jesus taught us, these things that we learn in the scriptures, we see them not as moldable truths to our will or to our opinion, but we see them as timeless truths that were true 2,000 years ago, true today, and will be true 2,000 years and for all eternity. Because Jesus is our king. His word is ultimate truth to us. Now, thirdly, Jesus is the one who restores brokenness. You see, at the beginning of the passage, God healing Christ's body and resurrecting him from the dead. And you see at the end of the passage that Jesus is the head over everything in the church And it is Jesus within the church that restores brokenness. In the tomb, God demonstrated his power in the Messiah when he restored life to the broken, lifeless body of his son. In the church, Jesus demonstrates his power when he heals our brokenness and he brings life to our lifeless soul. So the church is a body. Now, I have a few observations about life in the body. And the primary one is that life in a body is full of a lot of brokenness. I mean, we know this physically. The longer you live, the more brokenness you you begin to experience. Your body starts aching in new places. and, And, you know, the other day I was combing my hair all that I have here, these flowing locks. And I pulled a muscle in my back, combing my hair. I am bent over in pain in the bathroom. My wife's like, what is going on? I said, I pulled a muscle. She said, what were you doing? Combing my hair? I mean, this getting old stuff, Paul tells me it's really hard. And I'm beginning to learn that he might be right. I mean, physically, the longer you live, the more you begin to realize that life in a body sometimes mean that the, means that the body breaks down. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. It's true in our spiritual body. It's true emotionally. And there are many here in this room that have been broken by life. You've been broken by the consequences of sins from your past. Broken by relationships that stung. Broken by unfulfilled dreams. Hopes that you had that never turned into reality. Sometimes broken by the death of a loved one. Broken by news that changed the trajectory of your life forever. And if we could be completely honest with one another... Many of us, no, most of us, attend church today, and within us, deep within us, there is this nagging feeling of brokenness inside. Something's just not all together. And sometimes the church itself, the body there, breaks. Let me pull back the curtain a little bit and introduce you to three people that I, as a pastor, often run into. The first is a mature, godly pastor. For years, week after week, he has stood 
He has preached the word of God to his congregation. He has been there with people whenever they hurt. He has welcomed new life into this world. He has preached services for loved ones when they have passed. He has served honorably and faithfully. And if you talk to him whenever nobody else is around, he feels like an absolute failure. You talk to him and he often feels broken and ready to quit the ministry. And he says things like, if I were the CEO of this church, I would look at me and the job that I'm doing and I would say I'm not getting it done and so I've got to bring somebody else in here. And here is this hero of the faith, this man of God or this woman of God who has served so faithfully and they feel like an absolute failure. And what is the usual cause? The usual cause is a corporate mentality. The church is not a business. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the church shouldn't have a budget and shouldn't care about managing finances well and that we don't need to have buildings and we don't need to have staff and things of that nature. But ultimately, we have to be very careful not to bring a corporate mentality into the body that is the church. Because if buildings and budgets and a lot of people are the measure of success for a church, then Joel Osteen's the world's greatest pastor. I didn't even say anything about Joel Osteen now, okay? I'm just saying there's more than just building a tower for Jesus. And sometimes the honorable call of minister has been hijacked by an entrepreneur with a business plan. And we have to remember that the mission of the church is not to build this massive organization. It's to lead people to Jesus so that we might experience the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. A second person that I often meet is a former churchgoer. They used to go to church a lot. But now they don't go to church very often. They may still go occasionally, maybe Christmas, a baptism, something big's happening, they'll go. And whenever you talk to them and say, hey, why, why don't you go to church like you used to, they'll, they normally tell you a story. Well, this happened. This person treated me this way, or this happened with my children, or this occurred. And for whatever reason, there's a story, and now they, they don't go any longer. And if you really drill down deep, the underlying cause is generally unfulfilled expectations. One of the beautiful things about the church is that we all stand beneath the cross on equal ground. And sin transcends race, gender, economics, culture, politics, education. Whenever we stand before the cross of Jesus, we are all broken sinners in need of repair. And yet sometimes we come to the church expecting the church to fix us. Have you ever heard someone say uh, about someone that's out of church, if only they could get back in church, then everything would be okay. And so sometimes we come to church and we think, okay, that's where I'm going to get fixed. And then we go to church and we find out that the people I go to church with are just as broken as me. 
They're struggling through a lot of the same things that I'm struggling with. They have tension in their marriage, and they struggle in their finances, and their kids are not perfect angels either, and we're all just kind of broken and in this together, so the church isn't going to be able to meet my expectations, and so I get disillusioned. We have to remember the mission of the church is not to fulfill your expectations. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care for each other and try to walk with each other through life. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for one another and encourage each other and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit towards each other. We should be doing all that, but the reality is is that we will always let one another down at some point because none of us are perfect. And so we'll say things we shouldn't. We'll do things we shouldn't. We sometimes won't be as polished as we should or we won't be there whenever maybe we should be there. The church is not here to fulfill all your expectations, but it's here to lead people to Jesus. And whenever people are led to Jesus, they experience the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, there's a third person that I often run into in my life, and that is the guest that's looking for a new church. Uh, We're blessed here at Murphy Road that Every week, we have guests that attend our church services. If you're a newcomer to the church, we're very, very thankful that you're here. And we find that there's generally three or four reasons why people attend church. One, perhaps you're not a believer yet, and you're coming to investigate Christianity, and you're learning about the Scriptures, and you're learning about what church is all about. And we're glad you're here. We hope that you keep learning, that you keep coming. And we hope to see and to be there with you when you take that step in your life to become a believer yourself. A second reason we meet new people is because they've relocated to our area. And so they've moved, maybe from someplace further away in the Metroplex, maybe from a different state, whatever the location might be, but they are beginning a new chapter in their life. And so they come here looking for a new church home. Sometimes guests come because there's been a life change. It might be a traumatic life change that brought them back to church, or it might be a, a new baby, something like that. We find a lot of times you'll find these young these students that grew up in church, and then they go off to college, and they kind of drift a little bit, and then they get married, and then they have a baby, and they're like, oh my goodness, now we have to do something with this baby. You know, we like have to teach it right from wrong, so how are we going to do that? So let's take it to church, here we go. And so, so they come to church, and we understand that, and so it's a new life change, it's a big new chapter in their life. And sometimes people, guests, come into the church because they're disillusioned. Something's happened at their former church, and so they come here with a story. They come here with an experience of brokenness in the body. And it is to the disillusioned newcomer that I want to speak to a few, to a few, for a few moments. Often whenever I meet this person, they'll say something like, well, my former church, it just quit feeling like church anymore. And I'm really astounded. A lot of times I hear the pastor rarely preached the Bible. They'll say he started giving self-help talks and sprinkled a few scriptures on top of it. He was 35 and tried to dress like a college kid. I didn't get it. They'll say, well, he tried to put on a good show every week, or the church put on a good show every week, but 
there was something that just wasn't right. We have to remember the mission of the church is not to put on a good show. The mission of the church is to lead people to Jesus Christ so that they might experience the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. This is a special church. I'm not preaching on this subject right now because there's some curtain that if you look behind, there's all these troubles in the church. And so you're like, why is he preaching on that? I bet they have a lot of troubles. No, the reason why I'm preaching on this church, on this subject, is because it was the next section in Ephesians, okay? And so that's why I'm preaching on the subject today. This is a great church. I love this place. I love you all. The harmony that we have as a church is so very, very special. The Lord is blessing us in unique ways, and I'm so excited about the ways that we've been able to reach out into our communities and to begin various ministries and partnerships that allow us to take the gospel to people that we don't even speak their own language and we don't share a common culture, but God has brought people here that is allowing us to reach out to them. This is a special church, but we're not a perfect church. There's a lot of growing that still needs to take place in our lives. There's a lot of growing that still needs to take place in our hearts. And so we are a work in progress. But I want to make sure that we as Murphy Road understand today that we are not here to build a business. And as much as we love you, we can never meet all your expectations. And we cannot put on a good enough show to keep you or your kids entertained the rest of your life. What is the vision for Murphy Road? We want to be a church, a genuine New Testament church. We want to be the body of Christ. And I want to remind you that the head of the body is not you, it's not me, it's Christ. And sometimes the body pulls a muscle. Sometimes the body breaks down. And the only thing that can resurrect a dead body is the power of God. And the only thing that keeps a church together is the fullness of the one who fills all things. Ultimately, Jesus is our head. Ultimately, our goal is to lead people to know him and to experience the fullness that is within him that can repair the brokenness that is within them. And so we all come here together. For whatever reason, you got up this morning and you drove to 411 South Murphy Road and you came to this body. And we all come here with stories from our past. We all come here with stories of brokenness, disappointments. For some of you, you walk into the doors today and you have a story of new beginnings. And the only thing that can heal the brokenness of the past is the fullness of the one who fills all things. And so today, together as a church, we're going to come to the Lord's table and we're going to celebrate and we're going to worship the fullness of the one who fills 
all things. The one who can heal brokenness. As I was putting this sermon together, one of the prayers of my heart was that the Lord's Supper time today might also be a time of forgiveness, a time of healing, restoration in a lot of our hearts. Because I know you well enough to know that there is some difficulty that many of us are going through. And I pray that as you take the Lord's Supper today, that you'll find within you the ability to forgive. That you'll find within you the ability to press forward. And that you'll take some of those disappointments and hurts and lay them at the cross for God to do His miraculous work with. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment, a special time of taking of the Lord's Supper.